So this afternoon, um, we are in the still in the fifty-fourth chapter, and I'm taking several things out of that chapter so we can study it as elements of the children of God, of part of what is a benefit of promise to God's children. To doubt to the title of today's teaching, Great Peace, the Fruit of Spirit. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And we're talking about great peace and all the children being taught of God. The 54th verse, chapter, and the 10th verse says, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that had mercy on thee. Verse 13 reads, And all thine children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thine children. In righteousness shall thou be established. We know peace is imperative to have in life and some of the situations in which we become stressful or have or go through shouldn't be of children of God to have a, a troubled mind, a troubled heart, and it's not conducive to conducting the business of God. In the book of Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, the 26 through the 27 verse, it reads, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here in the book of Ezekiel, we see the sanctuary of the church of God being placed the midst of the people where he's dwelling in the midst of them but we see there where his covenant of peace is an everlasting covenant an everlasting covenant and truly it should be an everlasting and we should be able to have peace and walk in peace if we're children of the Lord and brethren with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he indeed is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. We read in the book of John, the 14th chapter, the 27th verse, where he says, Peace, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And the living version it reads, I am leaving you with a gift, a peace of mind and heart. And I told you, peace was one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit. And that means it should be increasing in our life. Our lives should grow, grow in peace. Yes. He says, and the peace I give isn't a fragile one like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. He consistently is telling us not to be fearful, but children of God, he hadn't given us a spirit of fear. And we shouldn't let things impinging in from the world cause us to be fretful or have any sort of fear any within us. The Amplified Version reads, Peace I leave with you. 
my perfect peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Let my perfect peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. It it extends a little bit further to say it's perfect peace. Let it calm you and situate you in every situation. Let it stabilize you. Let it have you of good courage against any and every challenge that come under you. So we need the peace of God. Have the peace of God, a peace with God. Is it, it, it? It's necessary to our lives, and it's of such a common effect in our life. God's peace. How, how, how do we have God's peace and get God's peace? We see that it's a gift. I tell you, it's a fruit of the spirit. So it's something that can grow in us. It's it's something that's produced. And I told you, one of the elements in our sanctification and in our growth in the Lord. The book of 1 John, the third chapter, in the 16th through the 24th verse reads, By this we will know without any doubt, Antalysis, that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart and quiet our conscience before him whenever our heart convicts us, that is, convicts us in guilt for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things nothing is hidden from him because we are in his hands beloved if our heart does not convict us of guilt we have confidence that is complete assuredness and boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we carefully and consistently keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, that is, habitually seeking to follow his plan for us in our lives. This is his commandment that we believe, that is, with a personal faith and confident trust in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we unselfishly love and seek the best for one another just as he had commanded us. The one who habitually keeps his commandments, that is, obeying his word and following his precepts, abides and remains in him and he in him. So as long as we consistently are doers of God's word, loving his commandments and walking faithfully in those and his precepts, he abides in us and we in him. By this we know and have proof that he really abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us as a gift. Here and again, here's another gift we receive of the Holy Ghost, of the earnest of our inheritance. He had given us this other comforter to guide us and lead us in all truth and to be a surety for us. But in verse 16, John teaches that we can know by we can know love by observing the way Jesus lived his life. That's why we have to take his yoke upon us and learn of him. We have to, and see how he lived his life. What was the historical Jesus life? What, what faith that we have to walk in his ways and imitate him. To, to walk as he walked. 
He sacrificed, he sacrificed his life for us by laying it down willingly. That's our, as our kinsman redeemer, he laid down his life willingly each day, as well as in death, setting us an example to follow in our relationship with our brethren. And so, as we do for one another and sacrifice for one another, we're willing to do just as he did. In verse 17, as we continue to read, he provides a practical illustration of a way we can lay down our lives in love. A way we can lay down, that we lay down our lives for one another and we have that confidence and that we keep his commandments. Uh, Then in verse 18, he encourages us not merely to agree with truth, but to take action to meet a brother's needs instead of saying, well, I know how you feel and uh, God's going to bless you or whatever. Sometimes we may have to meet that need. We may have to do for others. You know, like James says, uh, instead of saying, I pray for you and be warm and go, we have to give of ourselves. We have to sometimes make sacrifices for our brother and not just give him a word, but also indeed also, not just in word, but indeed, we go out of our way sometimes. But it has to be spirit-led. It has to be, and that's why we have to have a surety of the Spirit and the prompting of the Holy Ghost. Verse 19 begins to show the effect of devoted sacrifice to this way of life. As we walk and grow in the Lord, as this becomes a way of our life, the persuasive power of knowing we are doing the right thing inspires assurance, confidence, and satisfaction, and we feel a positive sense that we are right with God. We have that assurance that we're doing as as we're, we're just like Christ was, that we're doing as he did. There's a, 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 a surety of the faith, a surety in the way, not a, a self-centeredness, not, not one that comes from self-pleasure or whatever, but it comes from knowing the Savior and knowing His walk, or His way of life. He then explains that when these are not produced, but we feel guilt and condemnation because we know we are not doing well and are not and our concern for not being perfect overwhelms us, we need to go to God for forgiveness because he will forgive us. You know, I I, I may have should have done this for that brother instead of thinking about it. Now my heart's convicted me. Could I have done more? Should I have done more? You know, because it's your heart that convicts you. And that's why he writes upon his heart, our heart, and then he gives us a new heart. His word is a mirror. His word is what we should be doing. And are we doing as the words say do? Is his word convicting us? Uh, We should have given, we should have perhaps performed the service. If I could have told, uh, offered something, uh, helped in extenuating circumstances to make it better for that individual, yes. uh, for that person. Uh, as people come to us, and sometimes God doesn't send the rich, doesn't send the well-off, 
doesn't send the wise, but sometimes he sends a beggar. Sometimes he sends someone that's in a much lower destitute situation than we are in. And do we despise that person? As James says, we do well for one that's a well-to-do person. We say sit here or whatever, but the person that's despised or in poverty or lowly, we treat them in a and disenfranchising way. Verse 21 says, is a subtle encouragement to repent, to turn from our self-centeredness so we can be at peace with God within ourselves. Because if you're a child of God, your heart has a way of convicting you and say, you know, that wasn't right what you did. That wasn't right what you said. And we have the surety of the word of God, a more sure word of prophecy. Peter said, to back us up in that. Because if we're praying and studying God's word and walking in his commandments, those commandments are alive. The the word of God is alive, and it's going to lead us and guide us to someone or some critical point to point out that flaw, that fault, which convicts us and makes us go back and examine ourselves and makes us get right with God. Verse 22 discloses the positive effect of laying down our lives in sacrifice for our brother by devotedly keeping his commandments and answered prayer. That's why a lot of times things be going right for us because if we know we're walking according to God and living according to God, we pray and ask God to help us whereby we could meet needs not necessarily our own needs but others needs and we know we have those petitions that we ask him about because we're walking in his commandments and we seeing that he's fulfilling our prayer because our prayers are not self-centered it's it's about helping others it's about reaching out and doing something for someone else and we know we have the petition that we ask of him. Now, living by faith and displaying it through a life of sacrificial love is the theme in verse 23. And in verse 24, it it reveals another positive effect to know absolutely that we live and he lives within us. There's assurance that that is Christ. Christ, we can humbly feel him. There is a fellowship that says the fellowship of a believer that Christ dwells within us and that we know we're keeping his commandments and walking therein. Our lives revolves around faith in the knowledge of God and faith in the knowledge of this assurance that we are in Christ and that we do love the brethren. That our focus is his own loving the brethren. So, in effect, then, if we're doing that, I tell you, peace was a fruit of the Spirit. Since he imputes his righteousness to us, peace becomes a product of righteousness. Because as we're doing the will of God, keeping his commandments and his precepts and statutes and his decrees, that peace, that calmness, that assurance that we have comes as a result 
of the product of righteousness, a righteous life, living a righteous life. Those are the rewards. Those are the fruit, the tangible fruits that we can see and others can see. It's like saying, well, I know that's an apple tree because I see it's consistently producing apples. I know it's in a good place and it's well watered because it's not little shrivelly apples or whatever. It's plump and juicy apples, the leaves, and it seems to be well watered. A well watered Christian that's drawing on the word of God is like a tree planted by the banks of a river that draw water through its roots and its vine system. And if we're in the vine, if we're attached, we're the branches and we're attached to the vine, he's a vine, he supplieth all of our needs. He causes us to be fruitful. He causes us to be strong and live a vibrant life. The book of Psalms, the 37th Psalm in the 37th verse says, Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Let's read it in the Amplified here, see how it reads. It says, Mark the blameless man, the one who is spiritually complete, and behold the upright, that is, he who walks in moral integrity. There is a good future for that man, and peace, because a life of honor blesses one's descendants. That's why it says great shall be the peace of those those people. That's why David's sons, Solomon, enjoyed peace because God had never forsaken the righteous nor his seed begged for bread. And we see that God did a lot of things for Solomon because of his father's David's sake. So we should live in the righteous integrity of our hearts that are in Christ Jesus. That's the sacrifices that we're making. Righteousness produces peace with its, with its qualities of quietness and assurance. But at the same time, peace provides proper, a proper environment for righteousness to grow. In stillness and in peace, we say, peace be still. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You see where all of those elements, one feeds upon the other. The environment, we, we talk about climate change. And, and if man had been taking care of his environment and what he was doing in the environment, to cause it to be out of kilter, of out of balance. But we see that God or the environment, the world, the creation is striking back, but that God is working to bring about a new heavens and a new earth, and that his people are looking at the ones who destroyed the earth, the ones that God has cursed from the earth. And there there is something that's going on. So with the tribulation and everything that's going on, God's people are flourishing. God's people are growing stronger because we grow stronger in trials and tribulation. Tree is known for its, at doing those things. One element builds up on the other. As I said, as they said, the old saying says, one hand washes the other. So it builds up on another. 
A home without peace hinders the development of righteousness. That's why Solomon was talking about a man that desires peace in his own home. And as many wives and things that was going on in Solomon's life, he wrote a lot about nagging and a man not having peace. And without peace in the home, there, that's, not a, that's not a stable environment and it's not conducive to a, a healthy marriage. It was a card I got from one of uh, a sister I know in, at Manneth Badridge Clinic or whatever, and she was writing me and my wife on our, it is our 42nd anniversary. But in our home, we try to pray, we try to keep well with one another, and to live and to make our marriage more stronger. And that's how we have to do with God to make our relationship, our marriage. We're married to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. To make it stronger, we have to water it with prayer. We have to water it with study of the Word of God. We have to water it by walking in it. Without attention to our relationship with Him, it fails to blossom or grow and without attention to relationship and your marriage, it, it stymies, it hinders its growth and its development. Thus God allows a Christians to divorce an abusive and unconverted mate. A lot of people, we know God hate divorce, but God's word, he spoke through Paul, he does allow divorce. He does allow it. He said one when they asked him about it, he said, well, Moses granted divorce because of the hardness of your heart. So you do need to read verse 16, but I'm not going on further on that trail there, but I'm just pulling verse 17, 15 out of here. 1 Corinthians 7 and 15 about a believer and an unbeliever when Paul was addressing these matters. Uh, it says, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or uh, sister is not under bondage in such cases because uh, but God had called us unto peace. So if you're not able to peaceably live with one another, we must pursue peace. So it says, let the spouse depart. In other words, leave, become estranged, divorce. Uh, the Amplified reads, but if the unbelieving partner leaves, let him leave. In such cases, the remaining brother or sister is not spiritually or morally bound. But God has called us to peace. It's better to do that than to have a domestic abuse or a domestic thing where there's a restraining order and then one eventually kills the other. Yes. So many people stay in abusive relationships and it ends up in death. It ends up in death of one of the spouses. The English, the living version reads, but if the husband or wife who isn't a Christian is eager to leave, it is permitted. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife should not insist that the other stay, for God wants his children to live in peace and harmony. Like I said, if it if it's not what it should be, maybe y'all should depart. Maybe y'all should separate. It would be better than killing one another. 
We know when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So if one's living in such a way, Proverbs 16 and 17, it says, if a man's ways please the Lord, that is a man or a woman, and let's just say a Christian ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. So if you living a such a pleasing life to God, maybe you and your spouse could exist together and still be at peace with one another, not necessarily depart, not necessarily have to separate or leave the same home or whatever. Who knows? Maybe you could win your spouse to you. Maybe y'all could be reconciled after they see the nature of your way and the nature of your God. Because it says when a man's ways please the Lord, he'll even make his enemies be at peace with him. Now sin separates man from God, causing a confrontational relationship with him whereby man receives God's wrath. Sin separates man from God. If, If a man's ways please God, it even brings his enemies to peace with him, then sin destroys a relationship. Sin separates a man from God. Your sin and iniquity have separated you from God. That's what separates. That's the reason Israel was scattered. That tears us apart. God doesn't even dwell with us when we're in sin, when we're unbeliever, when we're rejecting him. But then we under the we receive the wrath of God. That that's different now from man and other people. Sometimes people go their way and separate to be at peace or whatever. They never have to have interactions with one other uh, other again. But with God, if you reject Him and your ways and the sin that separates you, now we under the wrath of God. So you under God's wrath then. This is anything but peaceful. That's why Saul, you remember, evil spirits from the Lord came unto Saul. You know, you you end up being vexed. That's that's vexation when you're not in agreement with God. Peace leads to more peace, washing away strife, and fear as a river sweeps away debris. So peace leads to more peace, and the peace grow and increase. But wrath and, and... Strife, confrontation and competition, all of those things are the opposite of peace. They lead to division. They lead to all kinds of strife. So let's talk about peace here in the book of Philippians. Peace in Philippians, because we're talking about understanding and God and the fear of God. It says Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. And the peace of God. You remember we're talking about the peace of God or peace with God. He says, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, 
If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. See, if, if you have that attitude, that disposition, that's what your thought life is. So that's where the assurity, you remember I said the assurity and the hope and confidence in God and keeping His commandments, that peace that exceeds any other understanding, any other hope, anything, because of the mind that stayed on God and pleasing under God. Listen at that what Paul's saying about that person that the peace of God shall be with. Let me read it to you in the Amplified Version, maybe. It says, Do not be anxious or worried about anything, but in everything, it is in every circumstance and situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, continue to make your specific request known unto God. Not, not just a general prayer, but if, if it's for the water, if it's for your car, it's, if it's for a situation at work, if it's for a specific illness, not just heal everybody in the hospital, but heal this specific individuals. As Jesus says, Lazarus come forth. Let's get specific about what we want to do, God to do. Not just a generality of bring the church together and save all mankind. But we're talking about a specific individual, maybe your child or someone that, that asks you to pray for him. Are you praying about a situation with your neighbor or enemy or someone? It says, And the peace of God, that is, that peace which assures the heart, that peace which transcends all understanding because God is the one that gives us to us, it's away from that. I'll tell you about that in a few minutes in the book of Luke. You can't understand or see this because this is the peace of God. It transcends all understanding. That peace which stands God over your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus is yours because he says my peace I give unto you. I give you my peace so that transcends any understanding of anybody any could know that with the outside things impending upon you, impending upon your life, the circumstances and situations, you still have a peace. They can't understand why you're at peace in that situation, that you're in the lines then, but there's still this calmness and peace that you're resting in God. He says, finally, believers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable and worthy of respect. Whatever is right and confirmed by God's word. You remember I told you it's the keeping of God's word and confident assurance of his word, his precepts and his commandments. That's why with prayer and supplication we know we have the request of him because we are sure that this is God's word and this is his will. Whatever is pure and wholesome. Whatever is lovely and brings peace. Whatever is lovely and brings peace. Whatever is admirable and of good repute. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, 
think continually on these things. Center your mind on them and implant them in your heart because these are the things of God that transcends the understanding of man that places you in a place of where you meditating in your heart on his word and the truth and the promises that are contained in his word. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And that's why we have to be example of the believer in Christ Jesus. We have to follow Christ if others are to follow us. So Paul says the things that the Philippians had seen in him Practice these things in your daily life, in your day-to-day life. These are the things in which you should be doing this way. And the God who is the source of peace. Because we're looking for his peace. And you remember he says, my peace I give unto you. That's why we're to seek after Christ, was to seek after God. Follow after him. He says, the peace of God who is the source of peace and well-being and well-being will be with you. So God gives his peace to those of a pure or righteous heart and mind. That's what God gives his peace to. That's why he says the great peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It is a peace that increases. The transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament uses of peace illustrates its perfect its personal and internal application. Out of about 90 New Testament instances, 90% refer to heartfelt peace. It's an internal application of peace, not an external, not of circumstances, but it's an internal feeling and it's something internal, so that's why the spirit, the inner man, processes this peace. It transcends the understanding of the applications of the outward circumstances that are impinging upon you. I told you I was going to talk about a peace that passes all understanding out of Luke. The seventh chapter of Luke in the 49th verse, this is, you remember the woman that anointed Christ's feet with oil and washed him with her hair. And as they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves who is this who forgiveth sins also because you remember he says thy sins be forgiven he told the woman thy sins be forgiven now see that's different when someone says thy sins be forgiven you remember Simon guessed a surprise to hear Jesus taking on the divine prerogative to forgive sin. It, it happened in the book of Luke, also in the fifth chapter, the 20th through the 25th verse, about the man with the pause, and he told him to take up his bed and walk, that his sins were forgiven him, that he healed, that a healing took place then. And they said, Who is this? He, this blasphemy. You hear him committing this blasphemy? Only God can forgive sin. You remember I was telling you. This peace is in the mind. This peace is an internal peace. This peace is processed in your conscience. We read that earlier when I was talking about the consciousness and peace uh, in the book of John, First John, and that we have this assurance within us. It's, it's processed in the inner man. 
Well, here he says that it is her faith that brought forgiveness, not her tears, not the fact that she washed his feet in her tears, was washing, and she kissed him and anointed it with ointment. Not a work, but that it was her faith. It says her faith brought forgiveness. His last comment to her is, go in peace. Go in peace or go into peace. In other words, when he told her her sins be forgiven to go in peace, she receives Christ's command to enjoy that peace and live in the full realization of the peace that passes all understanding. You go in peace. You live in that state of mind. You live knowing that I had granted you forgiveness of sin. You remember I told you about the guilt in our conscience convicting us. That if we feel we've done something or we feel uh, there's a condemnation that are those that are not in Christ Jesus. And it says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus because in him our sins are forgiven. That's a release of stress. That's a release of that to know that we're on God's side, that God is with us. It's because we feel our sins are forgiven, that God had forgive, was forgiven our sins and they had been remitted away from us. That they had been taken away for the remission of sins is in Christ Jesus. We are all debtors in the sight of our just creditor. That's why we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us of our transgressions. For we've all transgressed against God. We are great debtors. So we pray each day for a daily forgiving because we know we all sin and we all debtors unto Christ. All have sinned, so none of us has a way to discharge our debt of our own. According to Romans 3.23, Now Christ can forgive all who truly repent of their sins and turn to Him in faith and only Him alone. This is in Christ Jesus. That's why he's able to give us his peace because he can forgive our sins. He can remove a conscience of guilt, this inner mindset. So I say you have to be at peace with yourself. You have to be at peace with yourself to be at peace with others. If you have some internal discombobulation in that you're all messed up inside, it's going to show external. But see, this peace is internal in its process to where it has an effect upon the physical. You remember I told you the spiritual has the impinge on the physical and not the physical impinging on the spiritual. Or we can't overcome. And that's why we needed that kinsman redeemer. He gave us through him. That's why he was able to do these things. That's why he came as a man so we can do as he did. The works he did because now he has liberated us. Yes. And brought us back from the bondage of sin. Yes. And if our sins are forgiven and he had brought us back, he had redeemed us, he had put us in right standing with God. Now we have that moral integrity because he've imputed his righteousness unto us and we need to increase in righteousness. 
We need to preach or teach another section on righteousness when we finish this piece. Righteousness was in the last chapter. We need to talk about a little righteous, a little bit more righteousness here. Now, in the book of Acts, the 13th chapter, the 38th through the 41st verse, it says, So let it clearly be known, let it be clearly known by you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. That is through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We preaching and proclaiming the good news. That's what happened. That's why he says whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever, think on these things. So the power of life is in our words, and we go out singing and rejoicing because we have been forgiven, and we're trying to give this to somebody else. This is some good news that we've been reconciling to God. He had given us a ministry of reconciliation. Now, I proclaim you, and through him, everyone who believes, that is, who acknowledges Jesus as Lord and Savior, and follows him. And to follow him, you must take up your cross and deny yourself, and you're his disciples, if you continue in his word. He says, now, everyone who, who believes is justified and declared free of guilt from all things. He declares you that's a state. Now you have to have faith to believe that. Yes. That's what faith does. It causes you to believe the word of God that's preached. Faith coming by hearing the word of God and we're saying these are the promises. This is the action that Jesus has done from which you could not be justified and freed and you could not be justified and freed of guilt through the law of Moses. This is something the law couldn't do. This came through the promises of the work of our kinsman redeemer to liberate us from bondage. See, it just didn't give us eternal life. It freed us. It released us. This is the year of Jubilee. All debts have been paid. Our creditor has been paid off. All this is in Christ Jesus. Now we have an advocate with the Father. He's our covering. He paid the redemption price through his blood. All these things happen. Therefore, be careful so that the things spoken of in the writings of the prophet does not come upon you. It says, look, you markers and marvel and perish and vanish away. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, even if someone describes it to you. Uh, tells it to you in detail. Even though I preach and teach this, you can't believe it because you can't understand it. It is beyond understanding. You remember I said this thing is incomprehensible. It transcends a past understanding. God has to reveal this to you. This is the mystery of godliness. This comes to those that have been given ears to hear and eyes to see. And that he opens the understanding whereby they may understand the scripture. This is a work of the spirit. This is truly a supernatural spiritual work. And he says they shall vanish away. The mockers shall vanish away. In other words, those are the ones he says, fret not thyself because of evil doers. For they soon shall be cut off. Because why? They have rejected or didn't receive the word. And if you don't receive the word, the wrath of God is upon you. Remember I said? The wrath of God is upon some. 
Now through his willingness to take our debt and blot it out with his own blood, we receive remission of sin. Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and repent. You will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You have to have your sins removed or remitted. And the remission of sins comes through Jesus Christ and his blood. Once freed from sin's oppressive debt, debt, we must show ourselves granted we must show our gratitude to him by living in holiness and loving to serve others. You remember I came back from First John and says, if you love Christ, if you have that assurance, you would love others and do for your brethren. You would show a service to others. Remember, as Jesus says, he didn't come to be ministered to, he came to minister to others. And so as Christ, as imitators of Christ, we must minister to others. We must minister to our brethren. Glorifying him in the life of righteousness. Second Peter, first chapter, two through four. First Peter, second chapter. Second Peter, I'm sorry. Second Peter, first chapter, verses two to four. And it reads, Grace and peace that is a special sense of spiritual well-being be multiplied to you in the true and intimate knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has bestowed on us absolutely everything necessary for a dynamic spiritual life and godliness through true and personal knowledge of him who call us by his own glory and excellence, by a personal knowledge. You remember I tell you, he's a personal God. Through personal knowledge, he's going to reveal it to each and every one of his children. All of his children shall be taught of God, and great shall be their peace. That's because each and every one's going to be taught of God. It says, for by these he had bestowed on us his precious and magnificent promises of inexpressible value, so that by them you may escape from the immoral freedom that is in the world because of disreputable desire and become sharers of the divine nature. You escape the desires and the things and the love of the world and you become sharers of God's divine nature. That inner man, that spiritual man, that nature that we feed that grows in Christ Jesus. That's through where the peace of God comes. That peace of God. Here's another reference to that peace of God in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, in the book of Psalms. And it reads, Psalms 119 and 165, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. They again go again, great peace. But it says in them that love thy law, love the word of God. Let's read that in the Living Bible. The Living says, Those who love your laws have great peace of heart and mind and do not stumble. Those who love your law have great peace of heart and mind and do not stumble. That word stumble is put in there. That's a good word. Because to some, Jesus is a stumbling block. To some, they stumble at the word. Human nature is enmity against God, and it rejects God's laws. 
Romans 8, chapter and the 7th verse. I told you, none's good. They all, we all reject God's law. God has to put us in a condition to receive of His law. Now, I told you, if you reject God's law, reject His word, and reject these things, that the wrath of God is against you. There's no relationship there. The result is continual warfare with God and between men. And there's no peace. You don't have peace with God. You don't have peace with men. There's a continual, as it was, was it Esau came that the hand of man was going to be against him and he was going to be against man? No one breaks God's laws as a way of life and can have peace, at least not the kind of peace God gives. Jesus says in John 14th chapter and the 27th verse, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He's giving. He's the one that gives us his peace, not this one the world has. That's a difference. That's a very much different peace that Jesus gives. The world can produce a level of tranquility from time to time. But it is not the peace of God. When a person sins, it seems as though there is a feeling, a natural fear that wells up in them. And you have, there's a certain look upon a person's mind. There's something that wells or something that's not right there. Even before the sin occurs, one invariably seeks to make sure no one else sees what's happened the consequences of what's going on. Sin has a psychological thing. And I said just eating of the fruit, that was something not just physical. Man not only died physical, but he died spiritual. That was psychological damage. That was a depravity where the connection, the spiritual cord was cut. The spiritual cord was cut Disobedience brought a fellowship, breaking of fellowship with God. There was a darkness man went into. That's why he tried to hide himself. He hid away from God. You can't hide from God. Darkness come upon the earth. A symbol of darkness. I was talking to you about darkness yesterday. It's a problem when darkness comes. This does not display a mind at peace. Immediately following a sin, the fear of exposure arises, and the sinner begins justifying, at least to himself, why he has done such a thing as he had done. You start to making excuses and giving reasons as to why you did what you did or whatever, making excuses or whatever, because there's a, 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 a wicked knowledge of what you have done was wrong. Your conscience starts. You watch it now. That's when you might catch yourself and make a confession and confess your sins. and confess. See, that's why the book of Proverbs says, He who hideth his sin shall not prosper. You have to confess your sin. That's why the Bible tells us, Confess our faults and our sins to one another and lie not to one another. If caught, he justifies himself as Adam and Eve did before God. Both of them had some reason as why they did what they did and they justified themselves by blaming the other ones instead of saying, I'm guilty, I did wrong, I'm at fault. 
In simple terms, God is showing us the consequences of breaking his laws. That's why it says some, there's a consequence. And that's why God says, those that sin against me, I'll repay. Each sin and transgression receive its just recompense or reward because sin has to have some corrective action, a punitive, a chastening, or some action to further show a person that you can't do in this way of life that has to be a sacrifice wrought for what you've done against God. If one were at peace with God, he would have no need to hide himself. With a clear conscience, he need not lie, justifying and shifting the blame to others. No one who breaks God's laws can have peace. However, one who loves God's laws will not only keep the peace he already has, but will add to it and its fruits and its reward. Great is the peace, and that peace grows. There's an element of growth to those that love God's laws and keep the peace. That's why it says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's why we'll talk about blessed are the peacemakers one of these days, but not today. Psalms 119 and 165 promises another wonderful benefit. And I was telling you about stumble. Nothing causes those who love God's law to stumble. To stumble indicates faltering along the path to the kingdom of God, or even falling completely away from God. Stumbling or falling away from God. Apostasy or falling off. And we don't want anything to cause us to stumble. You stumble sometimes, you can fall. Sometimes you can catch yourself and prevent the fall, but then sometimes you do fall. This provides great encouragement and assurance regarding security with God, meaning that we will not be turned aside by difficulties along the way. That's why he says, take heed unto the law, turn not to the right nor the left. We have to keep in that straight path. Instead of fear of exposure and a guilty conscience, we will be assured because God's word says so, as in 1 John. You remember it was in 1 John, the third chapter? We went from 16 to 24, but this is in verse 18 through 19. It confirms, it says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. You remember I said, not just knowing the word, knowing love and saying these things, but it says, in deed and in truth. That's what's key. Indeed, in the actual doing of these things, the deed, the truth of it. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. What a confident life we can live by following God's way. If we follow his word and know that we are in his word, walk in that word. Now another New Testament passage comes from 1 John, the chapter ahead of this one, 1 John 2, 8 through 11. It kind of parallels what we're reading in first in, in Psalms 119, 165. It says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brothers. Now we were talking about light yesterday because 
God is light. And darkness is symbolic of the dark one of Satan. And it says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He's still in darkness if you hate your brother. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. Doesn't this parallel the other one? Because loving your brother and you can't, you won't stumble. But if you hate your brother, there's darkness in you. Esau hated his brother. Cain hated his brother. God came and told Cain, be careful. Sin lies at the door. Because why? He was already scheming against his brother. He says, you shall rule over it. Sin's desire is to rule over you. Be careful when you're scheming and going in the darkness. You're about to stumble. I was going to print something about the library earlier and the carpet was laying down there and it, you know, how some things are not fastened now. And I stumbled over the carpet and it kicked up. And I looked back in that big thing and I said, well, hold on, let me go back here and straighten this carpet up before somebody else may fall over this thing, not just stumble because... Some people, when they don't catch themselves, they're off balance and they fall. Yes. He says, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in the dark, uh, is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He become, he's groping in the dark. The Bible tells you about groping in the dark. It's a sign of being in sin, not having the light of God. God's word is a light unto your path. It's a lamp unto your feet. It shows you you can walk very well. My Verse 10, verse 10 parallels. Psalms 119 and 65, exactly. It says, but he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 1 John 5 and 3 defines love. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome to us. The New Testament strongly affirms that Loving one's brother is keeping God's commandments in relationship to him. And this provides a strong and assured stability along the way. Let me see, can I hurry up and close this out? 1 John 2 and 11 then shows that the blindness of darkness enveloped the eyes of one who hates his brother, that is, who breaks God's commandments in relation to him. This blindness produces stumbling and fighting, and thus he has no peace. And that was Esau's. Edom's problem was the hatred and the continual vigilance against his brother. It is particularly disturbing if the brother spoken of happens to be your spouse, your father, because you remember I'm saying brothers in general, even your enemy, because God tells us to love our enemy. We can't eat our enemy. We must even love our enemies. So we can't do these things. Some people, uh, old people today stand a chance of being shutted off into a convalescing or old age or nursing home or something if only for the convenience of the adult children. Now I'm not saying there are not situations where being in a convalescing or nursing home wouldn't be better for that individual. 
But I need to finish this off Wednesday night, okay? I, I don't, don't want to go too far over. It's feeling better, but we'll get to it Wednesday night, part two.